We know that defective genes cause disease. How do we determine which gene or genes cause what? You're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing current therapies for new uses. And my guest is Dr. David A. Greenberg, Director, Division of Statistical Genetics, and Professor, Department of Biostatistics at Mailman School of Public Health and New York State Psychiatric Institute, Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in New York. Dr. Greenberg and I are discussing the power and problems of finding genes that influence disease. Dr. Greenberg, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you very much, Bruce. It's a pleasure to be here. So what would be the power for all of us if we could find the genes that influence disease? Well, I can give you a few examples that most people don't consider gene therapy, but are in fact the results of studies of genetics. So phenylketonuria is the absence of a certain enzyme which processes phenylalanine, which is an important amino acid for everyday life. In certain people without this enzyme, a buildup of phenylketones develops and it causes mental retardation. This was a disease that was a big proportion of people in mental institutions or institutions for the so-called feeble-minded in those days until this enzyme deficiency was discovered. Once the enzyme deficiency was discovered and what it did, the first form of therapy was, well, let's cut out all phenylalanine from the diet of these people, and that's in fact, was very effective. It's not a very pleasant therapy for the people who have to put up with the food that substitutes for real food, but it's effective, and people develop normally. So that's an example, a simple one, but a very effective one of what knowing what the gene does can lead directly to a therapy. And what's the problem of trying to find those genes in everyday life? Well, most of the genes, we have discovered a large number of genes that cause disease. These are mostly diseases, the so-called Mendelian diseases, that are caused by a single gene. So, for example, um, Tay-Sachs disease, or sickle cell anemia, or Huntington's disease, uh, which, of course, killed Woody Guthrie. If something is wrong with that gene, depending on how it's inherited, if one copy of the gene is sufficient for life, as in most of the enzyme deficiencies, then people are fine. So, for example, for Tay-Sachs disease, if one parent is a carrier and the other is not, then all the children are fine. Each child has a 50% chance of being a carrier, but they'll lead perfectly normal lives. If you have two copies of the gene, if both parents by chance give the bad gene to the child, then you have an enzyme deficiency. In the case of Huntington's disease, you'll need one copy of the gene in order to manifest the disease. So if we know what all these genes are that cause these diseases, how come we haven't found cures for them yet? Ah, that's the big question. The problem is the simple fix that one people comes to mind is, well, if the gene is defective, let's take it out and substitute the right gene. And that has proven to be extremely difficult because the cell machinery is very delicate and is very complex. So how do you get a gene in there to substitute for a new gene? They're just starting to be able to do that with the new technologies. So, for example, there's something called adenosine deaminase deficiency, which is, again, an enzyme deficiency, which leads to an impairment of the immune system. And a few years ago, it was discovered that you can take a gene and put it into the erythrocytes and compensate for the fact that this gene is not there. So this is one of the first and most successful, currently, examples of gene therapy. But this is a very simple fix. In order to get into, for example, every cell of the body, you'd have to somehow get a gene in there, get it in the right place, 
get it to be able to be expressed, because just putting a gene in doesn't mean that it's going to be treated properly any more than substituting an arbitrary piece of machinery in a factory is going to fix a problem in a factory. You have to get it in the right place and have it coordinate with the rest of what's going on in the genome, like any piece of machinery, in order for it to work. And that's what's proven very difficult. So let's go back and talk about looking for genes in the first place that cause disease. What's the most important factor when you're looking for these genes? The single most important factor, and the one that probably is causing us the most trouble today, is, strangely enough, defining what we're looking at. If you can't tell what disease you're looking at, then you can't find a cure for it, or you can't even find a gene for it. So, for example, many years ago, 30 or so, it was not really appreciated that there was anything other than the disease called diabetes. Diabetes was having extra sugar in your blood. But it turns out that there are at least two forms of diabetes, in fact, more forms of diabetes. There is, as we now know, a juvenile onset form, which is a lack of insulin in the blood. But there is also an adult form, which is not a lack of insulin, but that where the cells do not respond to insulin, it's simply said. So that these two forms of diabetes are, in fact, two distinct diseases with different responses and different causes. And unless you can separate those, you can't tell what genes you're looking for. The methodology for looking for genes that we have nowadays needs to work on a relatively pure sample of the disease. And if you don't know what the disease is, then you can't really effectively look for genes. So, for example, 200 years ago, or whenever the thermometer was invented, fever was a diagnosis. The person is hot. That's the diagnosis, fever. But you can't start to treat fever unless you understand that fever is a symptom that has many causes. And you have to be able to differentiate those causes before you can start really looking for a cure. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and I am speaking with Dr. David A. Greenberg of Mailman School of Public Health and New York State Psychiatric Institute, Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center, New York, and we're talking about finding the genes that influence disease. So what techniques do we use to find these genes once we've identified what disease we're talking about? Well, unfortunately, the methods for finding genes are difficult and somewhat complex. The one that was most successful at actually locating genes was called linkage analysis. Now, linkage analysis requires whole families in order to be able to have a chance of finding out where the gene is that you're looking for. And in linkage analysis, you collect the family and you try to find markers that co-segregate, that is to go with the disease within a family. So, for example, if you take blue eyes and brown hair, which have nothing to do with each other in human beings, this is just an example, if somebody with blue eyes always inherited brown hair, then you might suspect that the gene for blue eyes and the gene for brown hair are next to each other in some sense on the genome, are close enough so that they usually get inherited together within a family. That's how linkage analysis works. Starting in mid-80s and later, it was decided that we would put markers all over the human genome so that rather signposts saying, you are here on chromosome 9 in a certain spot. And these markers tell us where we are in the genome. Because all human genomes are same, are the same in the sense that the genes are located in the same place in everybody, once we have the signposts up, we can say what genes are in this neighborhood. And by using these signposts and looking at how they inherited from parents to offspring to grandchildren, then you're able to say what 
disease is being inherited together with what marker, and that gives you a clue of where the disease gene is located. You know it's near the marker. You don't know what the gene is, but being able to say that it's near this marker does two things for you. It tells you, first of all, that this disease that you're looking at is inherited, and second of all, that it's located somewhere near this marker. So once you have that information that you, there is a, definitely a gene there, because it's not always obvious what diseases are actually inherited, once you know there is a disease gene and once you know what the marker is, you can start hunting for the gene in that region, which is much, much narrower than the entire genome, and you're able to say, okay, I know there's a gene in this region, let's go find it. And what's the candidate gene approach? The candidate gene approach is where you think you have an idea about what is causing the disease. So if you happen to know, as happens in Tay-Sachs disease, that by looking at the nerves of people who died of Tay-Sachs disease, you notice there was accumulations in their nerve cells. And by looking at these accumulations, you determined what they were, and because you know what they were, it led to the gene hexosaminidase. And then you can say this substance is broken down by this enzyme. This enzyme is missing. Therefore, this disease is caused by a lack of hexosaminidase. That's the candidate gene approach where you have a guess. The problem that we have today is perhaps we're not very good guessers, but I think the real problem is that we really don't know what the cause of some of these diseases are. A number of years ago, I think going on 40, it was taken for granted that schizophrenia had something to do with the dopamine system in the brain. So people started to look for genes involved in dopamine metabolism in the brain, and they looked very hard and never really came to a clear understanding of what dopamine had to do with schizophrenia. So there's an example of where the candidate gene hypothesis saying, let's go look for genes involved in dopamine, didn't really lead to where people thought it was. Occasionally, it will work because we do know a lot about metabolism, and if we know if something is being metabolized, we can look for the genes involved in it. But in complex diseases, that's a much more difficult thing to do. And a third way of looking for genes is something called association analysis. Tell us what that's all about. Association analysis is very important right now because of the emphasis on genome-wide association studies. I spoke earlier about how during the 80s and 90s we put markers all over the human genome. Well, now that's expanded where we can put 500,000 or a million or a million and a half markers throughout the human genome. And therefore, we can ask the question, is this marker found more frequently in patients than it is in people without disease, that is, controls? And that's association study where you compare patients with controls and you look for differences. And if you see something more in the patients than in the controls, then you say, ah, this must have something to do with the disease. So association analysis is much simpler than linkage analysis. It can pinpoint a gene much more closely than in linkage analysis. In fact, you use association analysis after you found a gene region in linkage analysis. The disadvantage of association analysis is that it can be very tricky statistically because once you have found evidence of an association, you don't really know how important that gene is or what you found is because Association analysis can pick up very small and subtle effects that may be important to the gene, may be important to the expression of the disease, but may be peripheral. Another problem with association analysis, it's very dependent on the ethnic background of the patients and the controls that are chosen. So if your patients and your controls do not come from exactly the same background, you can come up with a false positive association just because the populations happen by chance to be different. 
And also another issue involved in all genetics is that the genes we find in one population for a disease may be different than the genes that are responsible in another population. This is just beginning to come out now as we understand the ethnic structure of populations throughout the world. We've sequenced the healthy human genome and are now sequencing the human HapMap genome of common diseases. What are the tools that allow us to map this new frontier? And what will this mapping mean to preventing, treating, and curing disease? I want to thank my guest, Dr. David Greenberg, for guiding us through the beginning of this journey of gene discovery. I'm attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that repurposes existing treatments for new uses. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.